Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, multinational mediation. With multinational corporate taxation and transparency being a hot topic for more than a decade now, Tax Notes reporters Chiara Straco and Sarah Paez recently took a deep dive into a dispute resolution mechanism set up by the OECD and its role in tax. Their story, OECD Corporate Mediation Lacks Teeth on Tax Matters, critics say, was published January 25th. We'll hear from them on what they found in their investigation in just a minute. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes federal author Abraham Leitner about his co-authored article on underwater lease assumption transactions. But first, Kiara, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be back. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. All right. So why don't we start off with an overview of what we're talking about here, the OECD guidelines and this sort of dispute resolution mechanism. So what are they? Yeah, so sure. The OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises, they're basically the set of soft law standards. So they're non-enforceable, but they govern multinational corporate behavior. And these range from areas ranging from, you know, human rights and labor to the environment and more specifically taxation. So basically how these work is if a group, you know, any sort of group, a federation or an individual finds that any sort of multinational corporation has violated these guidelines, they can file a complaint, and that's called a specific instance against a corporation for violating, you know, any chapter of the guidelines. There's 10 chapters with any one of the 51 national contact points. So those are the participating countries in these multinational guidelines. So basically what happens is these national contact points, they pick up the complaint if they think that it's, you know, worthy, and then they consider the request for mediation and they will work with the company and the individual or the group that filed the complaint to resolve the issue. What are they really trying to do with using soft law here? Well, it seems like the OECD and the countries that are involved in this specific instance complaint process um, related to the guidelines is they're just trying to hold multinational corporations to a certain standard. So, you know, whether that be a higher human rights standard for their supply chains or a higher labor standard uh, for their employees. And then in the vein of taxation, that really leads to, you know, companies not practicing tax avoidance and basically following the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. So, Kiara, how did this issue come up on your radar? Yes. So both Sarah and I went to the investigative reporters and editors journalism conference in Denver back in June 2022. And one of the panels we went to was led by individuals from Open Secrets, which is a nonprofit that tracks data on campaign finance and lobbying. So they went into detail during the panel on how to search for filings under FARA, which is the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So Basically, that requires certain agents of foreign principles engaged in political activities to make these periodic disclosures of their relationship, activities, receipts, or disbursement. So from there, Sarah and I became super interested in oil and gas companies and their spending related to foreign lobbying in Congress. Follow the money, as they say. Then 
somehow we stumbled upon the complaint brought against Chevron on the OECD's database of specific instances. And we were kind of shocked to see how many big name companies were involved in these cases related to tax specifically that were not well known. Amongst others, the companies that stuck out to us were Starbucks, Airbnb, and Plus Patrol. All right, so let's get into the, the Chevron case. Could you tell us what this case is about and what happened during the proceedings? Yeah, absolutely. So basically in 2018, a coalition of trade unions and non-governmental organizations filed a complaint, a specific instance with the Dutch NCP, which is housed within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, against uh, Chevron, the oil and gas multinational company. And they were alleging that the company had violated the multinational guidelines by concealing information about how it relied on Dutch subsidiaries that were acting as shell companies in what they call tax avoidance schemes. So they basically said that Chevron hid tax-related information about its use of 14 uh, shell companies established in the Netherlands that were used allegedly to facilitate tax avoidance through likely non-payment of corporate and dividend withholding taxes in countries like Nigeria and Venezuela. And basically what these groups were asserting was that they just could not find this information. So not only was Chevron in violation of the taxation guidelines of the multinational guidelines, but they were actually also in violation of the disclosure guidelines, which says that multinational corporations must disclose certain financial and other information to the public. Okay. And, and what happened you know, during the proceedings? Well, basically, and what we heard, we heard from both sides, we interviewed people who were involved in the, you know, putting the complaint forward. And we also interviewed um, a spokesperson from Chevron. And we were able to interview um, someone who works in the Dutch NCP. And what we found out was that, you know, according to Chevron, you know, they received this invitation basically from the Dutch NCP to engage in a mediation process based on this complaint. Um, and Chevron said that they did work with the Dutch NCP for about three years answering their questions and going back and forth with them. And basically, at the end of that three years, decided to pull out of the mediation process because they felt that there were issues with, you know, certain things being disclosed to the public as a result of this complaint that they did not want disclosed and they thought that that was unfair. And then they also mentioned that there was an issue with a conflict of interest within the, uh, the Dutch NCP. So the, the Dutch NCP is composed of four experts. Um, they have one from each of the you know relevant stakeholder groups that would be involved in the ME guidelines. So that's business, one from NGOs, one from trade union, and one from academia. So the person, the chairperson of the NCP that Chevron was alleging had a conflict of interest had actually worked for one of the groups that brought the complaint, FNV. Uh, which is a trade union. And, you know, now she's, of course, not part of that anymore. But they were saying that, you know, they had a problem with the fact that she had been involved with that group prior. But of course, what we heard from the people who brought the complaint, and even also from the person we talked to within the Dutch NCP was that, you know, that's kind of how that works. They do need somebody who is representative of trade unions who's really gotten to a point in their career where they're really considered an expert. And, and obviously, this the chairperson had worked in many different capacities. She hadn't just worked with this one organization. So 
and of course they they have you know representatives from other areas so anyway that was something that was sort of interesting that that we heard from all the relevant groups that were involved in this complaint process but yeah so basically chevron pulled out and the dutch ncp issued its final statement and basically you know acknowledged what was put in the complaint as from what they could find from the publicly available information that they were able to access they said yeah, this complaint's pretty reasonable. And they issued a few recommendations for Chevron to, you know, up its transparency and to get in line with the the OECD multinational guidelines that they found that they had violated. So Chevron withdrew from this process, but have they done anything to respond to the recommendations of the panel? From what we can tell, not really. Of course, Chevron has told us that they comply with all tax laws and all of the countries that they operate in. But, you know, in November, the social justice nonprofit Oxfam International actually came out with a report saying that there were several oil and gas companies, including Chevron, that continue to practice secretive tax practices and that, you know, these companies, including Chevron, have ignored repeated requests to disclose tax details that are in line with the standards of the independent global reporting initiative. So even five years on, that report was issued in November of 2022, it appears that Chevron is still not disclosing information up to the standards that countries would like to see. And since all of this is taking place in the Netherlands, have we heard anything from the Dutch government about it? Well, we have not heard anything from official government ministries about it. However, the Dutch NCP, while they are an independent structure, (laughs) <laughs> that is not technically affiliated with the Dutch government. Um, they do, they are at, you know, arm's length with the Dutch government. So um, hearing from them on, you know, something of this caliber, a violation of the multinational guidelines by a rather large multinational company, what we heard at least from some of the NGOs and trade unions was that it, it was a really big deal that the Dutch NCP did issue those recommendations and that they did basically side with the complainants uh, in saying that they really needed to see more uh, from Chevron in terms of transparency. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. This preeminent and innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Grad tax. All right. Now turning to this process in the the larger picture, you mentioned how this organization is at arm's length with the government. Would it benefit from perhaps a closer relationship with the government and information sharing? Yeah. So this topic of access to data between tax authorities and NCP officials kept coming up in our interviews with sources. And it kind of made us think, why is there this lack of communication with tax authorities when that would be super useful if companies chose not to engage or participate in the process? I mean, that was the issue with Chevron. And 
why there were possible factual errors in the Dutch NCP's final statement, which we mentioned in our story. Basically, the NCP must conduct its assessment using publicly available information. So when a company doesn't participate, then the numbers might get skewed or rounded up or down. So what we thought was interesting was when the Dutch NCP official said to us that she didn't think there was a need for further coordination with other departments when we asked her about whether this is something that might be considered in the future. I'm not sure if there are privacy and data protection concerns, a lack of resources, or if they just simply don't think it would help. But from the people we spoke to, ranging from practitioners, professors, and individuals from involved NGOs, it seems like it would be beneficial. So we spoke with a law professor, Martin Skeltema, and he told us that in the case of the Dutch NCP, it would potentially be because if the government supplied this type of information, it might jeopardize its independence, which Sarah mentioned previously, and kind of what we talked about in our story about how they are separate. Now, from the people that you you spoke with, have you heard any ideas of how they could make this process work better? Yeah, so we received interesting recommendations from Martin, who I just mentioned, and he said that there should be escalation mechanisms in place if parties don't agree or one party doesn't want to participate. He also emphasized that the NCP processes between OECD jurisdictions that adhere to the ME guidelines should be aligned and have more cohesion. So we learned that 51 governments have an NCP and each NCP has the autonomy to structure itself and its procedures as they deem appropriate so long as it aligns with these OECD RBC rules. And he said that government should just be more aware and attach consequences to NCP procedures if companies aren't willing to participate or implement the recommendations. So this would definitely level up that enforcement aspect of things, which might be lacking now. And it was interesting also because Sarah and I went to a conference in Vienna in January with tax professionals some in government, and many people were not aware of this mediation process generally. And so overall, gaining visibility, accountability, and compatibility would be a good start. And I know that they're actually planning on having a ministerial meeting February 14th to 15th to discuss some of these guidelines. And it's going to be promoting and enabling responsible business conduct in the global economy. That's their focus for this one. So as you've mentioned earlier, this process is, is, is for many different areas of multinational activity. Are there any like specific challenges for working in the tax area? Absolutely. Many of the people we talked to, um, including current director of the Center for Tax Policy and Administration at the OECD, Grace Perez-Navarro, said that, you know, tax is a particularly tough area to have mediation in because many companies really see tax as, you know, this is the area of the tax authorities. We really don't want to engage in any other arena or medium because we engage with the tax authorities on tax matters because the tax authorities often, you know, they're the ones who have the mandate and the ability to, you know, look through personal taxpayer data and make, you know, determinations about what's owed. Whereas for, you know, something like the the Dutch NCP, 
they really don't have that same type of authority. So again, and we heard this from Grace, but we also heard it from from others that we interviewed is that tax is just, it's it's really tough because again, there's one, you know, the tax authorities is an area where companies already engage and they don't really know about other forms of mediation that are available. Um, so it's, yeah, it's sort of a two-pronged issue. It's that you know, companies may not want to engage with anyone other than the tax authorities, but they also might not know to engage in any other places other than the tax administration. Yeah, I think also it would be that we heard from a few other officials that it's more effective in the environmental and human rights sector. And so, you know, Grace was kind of saying that she's not sure if it works, it might work better among different policy areas. So, you know, since there's not many incentives in the tax sector, maybe merging the tax chapter and disclosure chapter and putting it into the human rights chapter or environmental chapter, because, you know, the way that they structure these companies structure and do their tax planning, it affects the lives of employees and different people. So that was another thing that we heard from the people that we spoke with. Well, Kiara and Sarah, this has been fascinating. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's really great to discuss this. And listeners who are interested in reading this story can check out a link in the show notes. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Stephen Lagarde and Krista Birma explore what's next for the nonprofit executive compensation excise tax. Benjamin Allery and Christopher Yan examine the intersection between tax credit and trader business. In Tax Notes State, three Evershed Sutherland practitioners describe Water's Edge combined reporting and the 80-20 rules. Brian Hamer highlights troubling tax behavior that illustrates the need to change state tax codes. In Tax Notes International, Mindy Hertzfeld performs a reality check on the OECD's updated revenue estimates for its tax reforms by examining the economic impact of the TCJA. Jenny Longman and Nora Newton-Muller examine the U.S. tax treatment of property that is divided into a usufruct and a bare ownership interest. In featured analysis, Nana Amasarfo reviews the OECD's updated economic impact assessment for Pillars 1 and 2. On the opinions page, Robert Goulder comments on congressional consideration of a national sales tax. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Jasper. I'm here with Abraham Leitner, our director at Goldston and Stores. Welcome to the podcast, Abe. Thank you, Ariel. It's great to be here with you. We're here to discuss your upcoming Tax Notes Federal piece titled Reexamining Underwater Lease Assumption Transactions, which you co-wrote with Leah Siegel, also of Golston and Stores. Could you give us a brief overview of the article? Sure. Uh, first, let me say I appreciate your inviting me here to talk with your listeners about the article. The title of our article is Reexamining Underwater Lease Assumption Transactions. So for some context, parties entering into a new lease will normally negotiate the rent to a level 
that they perceive to be the market rate for the leased property, taking into account the type of property, size and condition of the property, length of the term, and market conditions. But sometimes the tenant discovers that the bargain it struck was a bad deal. And perhaps due to subsequent market changes or other factors, the rental rate for similar property turns out to be lower than the rent the tenant is obligated to pay under the lease. Such a lease is said to be underwater. If the tenant wants to give up the space by assigning the underwater lease to a new tenant, the original tenant may need to pay the new tenant to assume the unfavorable terms of the lease. Our article analyzes the treatment of a transaction like this, in which a tenant that's a party to an unfavorable lease assigns the underwater lease to a new tenant in consideration for a payment it makes to the new tenant. The primary issue for the new tenant who agrees to assume an underwater lease is whether the payment they receive from the original tenant is taxable income. Readers who are unfamiliar with the case law in this area may be surprised to learn that there's a longstanding line of case law holding such payments are in fact not taxable to the assignee. The leading case on the issue is a Second Circuit case named Oxford Paper versus Commissioner, which was decided in 1952. Oxford Paper involved a company that acquired a paper mill that came along with a lease for water rights that was, I guess, ironically underwater. The owner of the paper mill was so eager to be relieved of the payments it was required to make under the lease that it gave the entire plan to the assignee, along with $100,000 in cash, for no consideration other than the assignee's agreement to take over the unfavorable water lease. The Oxford paper decision mainly focused on the question of whether the assignee could claim a basis in the plan it acquired and the court essentially held that the assignee is treated as having purchased the plant for an amount equal to the negative value of the lease it assumed in the transaction. However, the opinion makes clear that the assignee is not treated as receiving income from the assignor with respect to the cash payment. A few years after Axford paper was decided, the IRS issued a published ruling, revenue ruling 55-675, which followed the court's holding in Oxford paper. Our article focuses on a more recent line of authority that some practitioners have interpreted as casting doubt on whether the Oxford paper case and subsequent ruling can still be relied on. These authorities include a series of private letter rulings and ultimately a decision by the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals in a case called Emergent Energy, which involved nuclear decommissioning liabilities. So a nuclear facility operator is required by federal law to safely dismantle and decommission the nuclear reactor at the end of its life. The cost of decommissioning a reactor is so prohibitive that it's common practice for the seller of a nuclear facility to give the buyer cash in consideration for the buyer assuming the decommissioning liability. However, the IRS has consistently refused to allow purchasers of such facilities to exclude such payments from their income under the Oxford Paper Doctrine. And in the emerging case, the court sided with the IRS on this issue. These authorities assert that 
the economic performance requirement, which is contained in Code Section 461H, prohibits taxpayers from treating an obligation to incur a future expense as a liability, quote unquote, for tax purposes, until economic performance occurs, which allows the obligation to ripen into a liability that can be recognized for tax purposes. Under the economic performance rules, economic performance of obligations to decommission a nuclear facility occurs only when the costs are actually incurred. Since the liability cannot be recognized for tax purposes before then, the payments a purchaser receives for assuming the decommissioning obligation cannot be treated as offset by the decommissioning liability, and the payments are therefore taxable to the buyer. Now, Section 461H was enacted in 1984, several decades after the Oxford paper case was decided and then blessed by the IRS in Revenue Ruling 55-675. It's been suggested by some practitioners that the Oxford paper doctrine can no longer be relied upon to exclude a cash payment received by the assignee of an underwater lease because economic performance of a tenant's obligations to pay rent on the release generally incurs only as properties actually used by the tenant. So it's a similar problem to the one faced by the buyers of nuclear facilities. Our article argues that the Oxford Paper Doctrine is still good law and has not been adversely affected by the enactment of the Economic Performance Doctrine. We argue that underwater leases are distinguishable from the adverse authority in the nuclear decommissioning context because the economic performance rules for underwater leases operate differently from the way those rules operate for nuclear decommissioning obligations. Thanks, Abe. Wow. What prompted your interest in this topic in the first place? This article is actually uh, repurposed from a paper uh, Leah and I wrote and presented at a tax club in New York City. The idea for the paper came out of research we did related to a live transaction in which one of our clients assumed an underwater lease and received a substantial payment from the original tenant for taking over the lease. Uh, I had a particular affinity for the issue because I had worked on a similar deal very early in my career as a junior associate. And uh, I had kind of, I guess, positive memories of, of that assignment and cutting my teeth on, on those issues. I was struck that this is really a fascinating issue. It touches on some fundamental principles of the tax law, such as the definition of income, the definition of a liability, and how those two things intersect. So I felt it was a rich topic to explore in a paper. The article is great. I've read it. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? Uh, sure. Uh, my contact information and bio can be found on my firm's website at goulstonstores.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I would certainly welcome any comments or questions from your listeners or from people who read the article. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Abe. Thank you very much, Ariel. You can find Abe's co-authored article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes.
for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.